Lord God, we are so grateful that we can gather together as your people this third week of Advent where we focus on the joy that it is to walk with you despite our circumstances. And I ask, Lord, that you would use John's message to us, no matter where we are in our journey this day, so that we would know you and follow you with wholehearted devotion. Take our minds now and think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. When I was a sophomore in high school, my very first job my mom got for me because she worked at at the Higbee's of Washington, D.C. Back in the time when department stores were a thing in our culture, they were quite glorious for you young people. They really were. It was special to go to Higbee's downtown. It was special to go to Marshall Fields in Chicago. It was special to go to Kaufman's in Pittsburgh. And it was special to go to Woodward and Lothrop of Washington, D.C. And my mom sold china and silver on commission at Woodward and Lothrop. So if you went to talk to Ann Sherman, believe you me, you'd walk out of there with no money. <laughs> she was good. She earned a good paycheck for herself. She got to the point in, in, in life and marriage, she says, I'm going to earn some money and have some money for my own. And I said, good for you, Mom. So she did that. And sophomore football was over. I needed money. I had nothing. All my lawn mowing money was long gone for the summer. And so I got a job in men's accessories and luggage. I'm 16 years old. What does a 16-year-old kid know about luggage? Nothing. But my manager was a good gal. This was her profession, and her name was Connie. I don't remember her last name, but it was one of those Saturdays right before Christmas. And I walked in from my 1 o'clock to 9 shift, and sales had been going on all morning. Store opened up early at 8 o'clock. And the men's department and the luggage department looked like a tornado had gone through them. And she was about in her mid-30s, and I'm 16, and I clocked onto my shift. I went to the department, and I'm like, and, and all over the place, stuff was all over the place because everything had been thumbed through. If you've ever worked retail, you know what that's like. You know, all the shirts are out, sweaters are out, belts are out, cufflinks are out. Everything was out. And she didn't know where to begin. She goes, I can't believe this. I can't believe that. I can't believe this. I can't believe, look at these shirts. What are we going to do? And I said, Connie, what do you want me to do? She goes, straighten the shirts up. I go, yes, ma'am. So I started to straighten the shirts up. Hour later, she goes, oh, that's great, Jean. Thank you. And then she started to bemoan other things. I go, Connie, what do you want me to do? And she gave me another assignment. And so my whole shift, all I did was be her gopher boy. I didn't have to deal with one customer. It was great. <laughs> you know? You know? Jean, can you help? Nope. Connie told me to straighten the shirts. You know? It was great. But isn't there times in your Christian life you just ask the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's the question which John the Baptist preaching prompted the crowd to start asking. And this is Advent, a season of repentance and expectation. So we're going to look at this text and see what the Lord wants us to do. And I can't answer that for you, but the Holy Spirit can. And when God's word is lifted high, 
The Holy Spirit moves in God's people no matter where you are in your journey with the Lord. And if you're not walking with the Lord, get ready. You will be. Okay? So let's open up our Bibles. To Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 7, we've spent the last couple weeks focusing in Luke's gospel about Jesus' return in chapter 21. He is going to come again as surely as he resurrected and ascended. He's going to come back for his people. And that's our week of hope. And we have that hope looking forward to us as well as we look forward to celebrating the joy of the incarnation of Jesus. Last week, we learned the great highway that John was building was one of repentance. Repentance meaning asking the Lord to forgive us our sins and changing our lives to walk with him. It's not just uttering the words, it's actually following it up with actions. So last week, John was saying, mend not your roads, but your lives. And so to put it in American terms of geography, repentance means removing the obstacles, flattening the Rockies, filling in the death valleys of our lives so that Jesus can have full access to our lives. And this repentance invites the fullness of God. In fact, when God's people live this way, it opens the door for the whole world to know him. We learned that the last, the final line of Isaiah words last week, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. If the church would repent, not just Christ church, but the whole church in America would repent in this way of its individualism, its materialism, its consumerism, its child-centered parentingism, its, its lack of love for its neighborism. A high would be, would be forged that the lost could not they would recognize readily. And many would come to repent and come to faith in Christ. And so John's preaching brought a vast response out into the wilderness, into the Jordan Valley for baptism. And I'm sure John, everybody's happy about a crowd, you know? It's no fun to preach to nobody. But here, this massive number of peoples, and I'm sure he was pleased, but he was not entirely pleased. He sensed that there were some insincere and some hardened hypocrites. So some had simply come just to see the show of John wearing the, the, the mohair suit. All right. Some were religious groupies who just wanted to be part of the scene. And others were calculating, you know, underwent baptism so maybe their friends could see it or their business associates could see it or whatever reason they were there. You know, it's really no difference today, right? Many attend the church on various occasions. They receive Christ, are baptized, have their kids baptized, go through confirmation, all for similar insufficient reasons. Case in point, he made free use of Christian vocabulary. He talked about the blessing of the Almighty upon his country and Christian confessions, great Christian confessions that would become the pillars of his new government. He assumed the earnestness of a man weighed down 
by historic responsibility. He handed out pious stories to the press, especially to the church papers. He showed his tattered Bible and declared that he drew strength from its great work and its scores of pious people welcomed him as a man sent from God to lead them. You see, Adolf Hitler was a master of outward religiosity with no inward reality. So John directs them all in what Luke calls good news. You hear John the Baptist preaching and you say, boy, that's good news. Luke did, verse 18 of chapter 3. So he exhorts them with good news. Well, what was this good news? We learned two great points in John. Number one, we learned to shoot straight with a talk about genuine repentance to our friends. And we treat others in the way God treats them. Very simple. So let's first talk about straight talk on true repentance. Confessions, professions of faith, church attendance, good standing in a Bible-believing church doesn't necessarily prove that much, according to John. So John wisely became very direct in his preaching and gave them a straight-talking message about the reality of the final judgment. Verse 7, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John is not name-calling here. He's using a word picture that all these people would have known. Now, I wouldn't suggest you use this word picture to your friends. He knew his culture just like you should know yours. You know, I, you know, I don't think it's a wise thing in American culture to say you're a snake. Um, but what he's saying is that this crowd, this massive crowd, are like snakes fleeing a brush fire, trying to escape but having no intention of having their evil nature or their behavior ever change. Kent Hughes says John's language was also meant to convey the repulsive nature of their hypocritical smugness. So John's advice to bear fruits in keeping with repentance went right to the heart of the problem of this crowd. And Jesus would later issue a similar warning here. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, You'll recognize them by their fruits. Any grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, true repentance produces the fruit of character. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. We all know that from Galatians 5, right? The fruit of the Spirit. That's the character. But then it also produces action. 
since some of these religious snakes were depending upon their ethnic privileges, John calls them to be people of true faith with action. All right? And John said, Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Because these folks thought genuinely that since they were Jews, they enjoy, or surely enjoy the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. That Abraham's blood flowed through my veins. Surely God would have great persons such as me. Right? That the merits of godly Abraham ran through me. Therefore, he needed me to be the recipient of such grace. But John said in effect, Don't think God won't have a people to bless if he cuts you off. He can create children out of stones if he wishes so john strikes a mighty blow my friends to the common delusion that connection with a church no matter how tight or how loose will actually save our souls thousands in every age have believed that association with a church will make them acceptable to god but faith in blood ties or in an act of baptism, or an act of confirmation. Church membership has led whole generations to destruction. Those in the church where so many are related to someone who works in Christian service are really susceptible to that. You know, my grandfather was a missionary. My uncle was a pastor. You know, so-and-so works for a parachurch organization. But a pr- but a all a prominent name will ever get you, apart from God's grace, is a greater judgment. Please remember that Aaron Burr was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. All right? Did you know that? Aaron Burr. You young people, he's the one who shot Hamilton. Okay? Everybody else should know this. All right? Aaron Burr was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, the greatest American theologian ever. So John drives this point home with a vision. In verse 9, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The gleaming blade of a sharpened axe lies on the ground beside the root of those who aren't bearing good fruit. The judgment that's about to fall is anything but superficial, my friends. It's real. And it's a terrible warning to all of us who pretend, have a facade of belief, a facade of repentance, a facade of goodness. And sadly, it's all too easy to fool me, to fool any pastor. It's all too easy to fool family members or friends. In fact, the church is not instructed to attempt to root out the false believer. So Jesus' parable of the tares reads, Then do you want us to go out and gather the the tares? Jesus said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers. Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." You can fool me. You can't fool God. 
I thank God John's preaching was not controlled by a desire for popularity. He was free from the fear of offending others, and such directedness is helpful in our day, my friends. More and more people have told me the more direct and loving I am, the more fruit-bearing these preached sermons are. So it's the truth in love was what John is actually giving them. And he was free from the fear of offending others, and such directionness is not in vogue today, but may it be so among us. Rather, many of God's people seldom mention sin, refrain from anything randomly offensive or condemning, and speak of a vague spirituality. The approved stamp of approval method of being a Christian today is to flatter unconverted people and to preach on sins that are not necessarily characteristic of the person you're speaking with. But God's word points us to a different path. Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to false prophets. Galatians 1, Paul writes, For I am now seeking the approval of men or of God. Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Bishop Ryle is always fun to read in these types of situations. He says, to be charitable when Christ is not is to be silent when Christ speaks. Is positive treachery to men's souls. The astounding thing that John's preaching worked. It's an amazing story. This charge changed these people to move and to act. And they realized they weren't real believers. They weren't real followers. And so they actually followed up. They realized that they had no spirit-directed fruit in their lives. And their thoughts, their desires, their actions had no roots in the faith that they actually professed. And so convicted of their, of their failings, The crowd asked multiple times, what shall we do? Now John's answer is somewhat surprising. We might have imagined that John would have given them something penitential to perform. Go do four active acts of random kindness. Go do, uh, commit yourself to the local synagogue. You know, go through catechesis class. Uh, Or perhaps something devotional like make sure you pick up the devotion for Advent and go through it every day, morning, noon, and night. But John's advice is ethical. He asked them to change how they treated others, which is the second point we have. Not only are we to shoot straight, we're to treat others God's way. For it's not uncommon for people who do not know Christ to perform elevated deeds in an attempt to prove that their Christianity is authentic. You know, they may take up a a social cause, work in a soup kitchen, good thing. Ring the bells for the Salvation Army, good thing. By the way, that was fun on Friday, wasn't it, those of us who came? You know, Uh, it's a good thing. I'm an advocate for the poor, thus thinking I'm proving my Christianity here, whatever it might be. A real danger comes with spiritual presumption stemming from exemplary ethical performance. 
However, it's also true that if you are a true believer, if you're truly regenerate, your faith will surely affect how you treat others, especially those who are close to you. Husband and wife, family, brothers and sisters, your business associates, your employees, and those in need around us. If there's no change in our personal ethics, no elevation of our concern and care for others, we may be self-deceived about our salvation. And John gives specific ethical advice. It's fascinating to three certain groups here. You have private citizens, tax collectors, and soldiers. So he answers them. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. It is significant that all three sections of advice have to do with money and material possessions, doesn't it? For the private citizens that came out, obviously had means, or he wouldn't have said, hey, you've got extra, make sure you share it with those in need. To the tax collectors, as you may well know, they were taking more than their cut. The Roman government said, collect $10. They would say, you pay me 15 And they'd keep five bucks and go to the ball game, whatever they would do, right? And the Roman soldiers, well, they didn't get paid anything. And this was a way, long way away from home in Rome. And because they didn't get paid anything, they would extort money. It was like that bully on the playground who would beat kids up for their lunch money. That's what the Roman soldiers were actually doing. And through the Holy Spirit, the private citizens are to share with others. The tax collectors are not to take more than is proper. And the soldiers are not to extort money and be content with what they've agreed to earn. The Holy Spirit, through John, is telling us that the way we hold on to our money and our material things is in relationship to others is a good indicator of the authenticity and health of our spiritual lives. Therefore, we must understand that high among the observable fruit in our lives that is keeping in repentance is a giving generous spirit to others. So, do we want to have an accurate evaluation of the state of our own spirituality? Here's some tests. Are we generous with our possessions? Do we open up our homes to others? How about our cars? If you have a truck, you better duck, because everybody's going to want to borrow it. <laughs> One of the reasons I got a truck is because I'm a selfish person by nature. This will be good for me to have to share it with people. Do we share our clothing, our food, joyfully? Do we do it with joyfully, or do we loathe when we share it? Do we begrudgingly give? Do we grasp it tightly? Do we enjoy giving to our family, giving to our friends? And more significantly, do we enjoy giving to those in need around us? 
Do we give regularly and sacrificially to the Lord? We're still in stewardship season. The pledge cards are still out. If you haven't gotten your pledge in, it's not too late. But I want to remind us, if we're Christians and do not give regularly to the Lord, if we're tight with our money, and we find it difficult to give to God, we're in spiritual trouble. And it calls us to, are we really a Christian at all? We must, each and every one of us, do these regular self-checks, including me. One of the reasons healthy Christians like to give and give to their church and to others is because they're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And when we do so, who gave himself for us, and it is said of him, it is more blessed to give than to receive, Acts 20, verse 35. It's one of our introductory sentences to the offering every week, right? So those of us who today have genuinely repented and whose lives are inviting the Lord to take down and prepare a highway for us to walk on and to give of their resources and time to others, that's a normal practice. And we get better at it year in and year out. And that's the beauty of Advent, isn't it? And moreover, such people live in a constant Holy Spirit-directed spirit of repentance. You don't stop repenting, young people. It's not a one-time act. Actually, it's our, it's our third promise, which is straight from the Scriptures. Do you promise to repent and return to the Lord? I will with God's help. Well, we all need God's help in order to do this. It's what we do. As we repent of our materialism, repent of our consumerism, repent of our individualism, repent of our lovelessness, repent of our child-centered parenting, repent of our meanness, our harshness, our jealousy, our hatred, our unbelief, our prayerlessness, our coldness, our selfishness, etc., etc., etc. Such is the life of living in the grace of Jesus Christ, my friends. It's living in the refreshing air of the forgiveness of sins. Such people are guilt-free and have a clear vision. And such people have a countenance that's an invitation to the world to walk upon God's highway with them. Because it really isn't, Lord, what you, do you want me to do? It's the Lord telling us, look at what I've done for you in Jesus. And it's because of what the Lord has done for us on the cross, offering us life in its fullness on his highway, not the world's. We have a fulfilling life, and we can straight talk with true repentance to others and bear fruit because of what's been done. Now I know what to do. Would you walk with me? Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this day and grateful for this word which has met us in various places in our lives this morning. And I ask, Holy Spirit, you would descend upon each and every one of us right now. In Jesus' name, that you would prepare a highway in our lives. Tear down the Rockies, fulfill in the, the death valleys of wherever we're holding back in a full-hearted walk with you. Of our materialism, our consumerism, our individualism, our lovelessness, the way we parent our kids, 
our impatience, our meanness, our harshness, our prejudice, our jealousy, our hatred, our unbelief, our prayerlessness, our coldness, our selfishness. Lord, we lay that at the foot of the cross and ask you to prepare a beautifully paved highway for us to walk on with you as we shoot straight with one another and our friends and family who don't know you in love and Lord that we would treat others with the fruit of the Spirit and people would recognize the wonderful work you've done us done in us and all the flesh shall see your salvation in and through us for it's in Jesus name we pray Amen. Amen.